Here we go. I'm going to do my best. Uh, a, a couple weeks ago, Katie and I had the privilege, as all of us at the University of Notre Dame were invited to uh, begin uh, the, the uh, school year at uh, Invocation Mass that was held in the Joyce Center. And we were so excited to be able to go. It was kind of neat because all, those, all the people that were in the law school, staff and faculty, we kind of sat right up there in the front like we were the most privileged or something like that. But it was kind of exciting to sit with these people that we knew and to worship God in that moment. And it was, a, it was actually very beautiful because it was, it was certainly a diverse crowd of people that came from all different faith traditions and, and countries from all over the world. And uh, uh, Father Jenkins uh, delivered a fine message, and there were some beautiful worship songs. Um, but one of the things that uh, I'm, my heart just always breaks in, in, during that time is uh, when we participate in the Eucharist, when we have communion. And, of course, Katie and I did as much uh, those of us that are not Catholic will go forward and you cross your hands to receive a blessing, which is wonderful. But there's always a part of me that my heart breaks. In fact, I know that there were tears because I know what we experience here at Living Stones. And what, something that I absolutely love is that we always say, uh, we practice an open communion here. Now, I know there could be a lot of criticisms for that, but the thing that's beautiful about it is, is it is the invitation of Jesus Christ who says, wherever you are, wherever, wherever you found yourself this past week, this past month, this past year, all of your life, whatever it is, there's nobody here that's going to judge whether or not you can come to the table. Jesus says, I have set this before you, and I want, to draw into, I want you to draw into my presence. I'm setting the table, and I'm saying, come and sit with me. And, there, and, and so uh, there's going to be a communion meditation later, but this is the way I wanted to draw our thoughts to kind of introduce this message this morning, that, that experience of being in the presence of God, where, where God, God's heart's desire is for us to be in his presence. And it breaks his heart when we don't when we don't embrace that. And so just as a little bit of a review, uh, this uh, from Paul's message last week that handled the Torah and the creation of the world, this creation that is in essence God building a temple where God dwells with man. And so in Genesis chapter 2.25, we, we read this, and Paul brought this out last week, Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. No shame. No shame. Why, well, the question is, why this nakedness? Why this focus in these first couple chapters of the nakedness of these two individuals? I mean, that's uncomfortable for us in these days. We're not going to be walking around like this in front of one another. But what it does do is it speaks of the intimacy that God designed and desired to have with his creation. That nakedness is not an issue. They felt no shame, no shame because of their nakedness. There was nothing hidden. There was no shame. And so in Genesis chapter 2, you see that God is walking in the garden. He has this naked intimacy with those, this creation that he loves. But unfortunately, there's this separation, this ripping of this relationship that happens. In Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9, Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is a common occurrence in the garden for God to be walking in the cool of the day as he was doing this. 
And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said, where are you? Where are you? Now, do you think that God in this moment is saying, I've lost my Adam? <laughs> no. No, it's not this question of, where are you? I can't find you. He's saying, where are you? Because you're supposed to be walking in the garden with me. I'm here. My position has not changed, but you have changed. Your position has changed. You're not with me. You're not beside me. You're not in this intimate relationship with me. And this is, in my opinion, the most heartbreaking moment of all of humanity where God is crying out and saying, where, where are you? I long for you. So in Genesis chapter 8, we read the story of Noah Paul mentioned the beginning of uh, Noah last week where he talked about where, where before the flood, remember, remember what God saw? That the inclination of man is always evil all the time. And so this flood comes. At the end of that story in chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is after the flood. And he came out of the ark and he, he has this moment of intimacy with God and he worships God. And taking some of all the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though, again, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. See, in God's mind, he knows. He knows his children, just like we as parents there are, there's a part of the life of our children that we know he knows his children. At the very beginning, he said it, and at the very end, he knows. They're, they're, they're going to fail. They're going to stumble. They're going to fall. But I'm not going to. I'm going to make this covenant with you, Noah. I'm going to make covenant with humanity that I will never again destroy all of mankind. I will never destroy the earth. And from this moment on, with the recognition of our condition, God continues to make covenants with man. Because his heart's desire is what? To restore the precious relationship that he intended to have with his creation. So in the beginning, God created and he said, steward this. Steward this creation. In other words, it is this idea, I have created, remember I mentioned, I've created this temple and what, I'm, what I want you to do in this temple is you come and live in it. You come and dwell in it. You come and steward this good creation. But after the fall, and with the tabernacle and the temple, which we'll talk a little bit about today, now God says, okay, you've decided to throw that out. You build it. <laughs> if you build it, <laughs> he will come, right? You build the temple. You create this space, and I will come and dwell with you, and I will fill it. But the problem that I have, the problem that we all have, and what we struggle with is busyness. We have this high-grade cultural and spiritual anxiety. And instead of running to the Father, we want run, run, run away from our God. And we say, here's the thing that we say. I've said it and you've said it. I've heard it so many times. God, why are you more present? Why are you not more present in my life? I don't feel you. 
I don't experience you. Why does God feel so distant? And the reason is, is because we, don't, we are not good. We are so busy that we don't create space for God to come and dwell. Remember, his position has not changed. It's my position with him. I, uh, I have a painting that I want to show you. It's very familiar to you. I have uh, censored it a little bit. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Uh, we know that this is Michelangelo's painting of the Sistine Chapel, that was on, a, on the fresco that's above in the Sistine Chapel, and it is the creation of Adam. And of course, we have God who is on the left, and we have Adam who is on the right. And I did a little bit of researching about this, this painting. As the cardinals would come in after Michelangelo was done painting the, the Sistine Chapel, they meditated and they looked and they admired this beautiful work of art that continues to be admired to this day. And the cardinal said, we have one criticism of you, of this painting. Adam's finger, Michelangelo designed to touch God. But they said, no, we don't want God, man's finger to touch God. It is the decision to seek God that belongs to man. And so you have this painting where God is, almost looks like he is straining towards man and he is being held back by the angels. Because if he was let loose, he would come upon his creation. And we have Adam, who looks like I look like after Sunday, on Sunday on my couch, just kind of, uh, you know, and he's kind of got a hand like this. And, and all he has to do is to take his finger and to touch the finger of God, to have this relationship, this decision to seek God belongs to us. Now, Paul mentioned last week, uh, we're handling, handling a lot of scripture, and I apologize, I'm going to do, I'm going to walk through a lot of scripture this morning, because I want us to get a picture of this idea of building a house for God. David had in his heart, we know, to build a temple for God. Let's dig in. Second Samuel after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent, the tabernacle that we talked about last week. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But the night the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I was brought. I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to pay, place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. This is the beginning of this covenant that he has with David. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since. 
the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the questions that comes to my mind, why does God need a house? Why does he need a house? Think about that. Why? It's because of this desire to be in the presence of God. That David will have this this idea of, if I'm settled, I want God to settle with me. I I want to be in his presence and for him to be in my presence. To enjoy it and take this creation somewhere with God. And it was David's desire to create this space but it's because of this separation, this, angst, this, this uh, brokenness that he experienced, that he was distant from God, and all of mankind is distant from God. So this speaks of this desire for man to be close, to be worship, to worship God and to create a space for God to come and dwell with man to build a house. So what is this house? And I'm not... I am not going to read all of the description of the tabernacle and temple. I encourage you to read it. It's chapters upon chapters, seven chapters here, that will talk about what's in the house. There are, I'll give you the brief thumbnail sketch. It's made of cedar and palm trees and cherubim, which, by the way, it's the only other place in the text that it appears. If you've got it in creation, you've got it in the temple. The pillars that look like trees with lilies and pomegranates. The lampstand that looks like a tree with branches and blossoms and almonds. And it's like when you're walking through this temple, it feels like a forest with animals, wash basins covered with lions and oxen and cherubim. And you have it situated on the top of the highest point, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. In fact, there are... uh, there are Psalms of Ascent, uh, and I, could have, I wanted to read through all of those, <laughs> and I didn't. I put them in your reading plan, get, grab a bulletin and read through these Psalms of Ascent that, that talk, uh, they sang to the Lord as they were going up Mount Zion to the temple. And wherever they found themselves, whether it was in hardship or celebration, they would sing these Psalms as they walked up Mount Zion. And it was this picture of, When I get up to the mountain, I am going to be in a place where God is going to be with me. And we are going to be united together. What a house. What a beautiful place this would be like. It's it's unlike any house that any of us have ever lived in. And man creates this space for God to come and dwell. So what do we do there? Solomon has words to share in, in 2 Chronicles, as he is the one, David's son, to actually build the house. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, starting at verse 12, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now he had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had placed it in the center of the outer court. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven or on earth, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father, with your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me according to my law, as you have done. And now, Lord, the God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David come true. But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. How much less this temple I have built. Yet, Lord, my God, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. And when anyone wrongs their neighbor is required to take an oath and they come to swear the oath before your altar in the temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing down on their heads what they have done and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with their innocence. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because you have sinned against you and when they turn back and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land you gave them and their ancestors. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you. And when they pray toward this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive their sin, the sins of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, and when enemies besiege them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people, Israel, being aware of their afflictions and pains and spreading out their hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven, your dwelling place, forgive and deal with everyone according to all they do. Since you know their hearts, for you alone know the human heart, so that they will fear you and walk in obedience to all, to you all the time they live in the land you gave our ancestors. And as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven, your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of earth may know your name and fear you. And as do your as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name and when your people go to war against their enemies wherever you send them and when they pray to your to you toward this city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name 
then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly, and if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and pray toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen and toward the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests, Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not sorry. <laughs> I read a whole chapter <laughs> to you. But I wanted you to, if you could just hear the words, what were some of the resounding things that came out? As we pray to you, hear our prayer, forgive our sins, hold up our cause, see those who are in need, all of these things. This is what we do here. This is what we do in the presence of God. We worship in his, in, in his presence. We repent and we cry out to God. We are reconciled with our brothers and sisters in this place. We bring justice and peace to those who are foreigners and, and for those who are marginalized. This is what we do here. We welcome those who don't look like us or talk like us, but we say you have a place at the table as well. And so after all of this, after this temple had been built and Solomon had said this in front of the whole people who were gathered there, when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, the text goes on to say in the next chapter, and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night. And we have this intimate relationship between Solomon and the Lord I have heard your prayer. And I have chosen this place for myself as temple sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God's presence is always here. Always. He's never left us. He will never leave us or forsake us. In this temple on Mount Zion, his presence is always here. However, our presence is the one that is distracted, right? <laughs> and we, beca we become so busy Sometimes not just in our own work, but sometimes we become so busy for God that we miss the presence of God. We have, uh, we, I saw this church sign. It was just around the block from where we live, and Katie and I would drive by it, and we kind of laugh a little bit because for about a month, this church sign said, stay busy because God is watching. <laughs> stay busy because God is watching. And I'm a little bothered by this. <clears throat> 
Not because I'm lazy. I mean, if I was lazy or uh, 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 slothful, that would be a reason to listen to that sign. But I don't think that that's what it's talking about. Because this is the part of our practice of spirituality that, that does not create a space for God. In our good intentions to do good things for God, we have become so busy that we do not see what God wants us to see. Take Elijah the prophet. He was, went to Mount Carmel. I've been there. I've, I've seen where he had to run back and forth and where he stands up on this mountain in, uh, against Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. And he, and, he, and he taunts the prophets of Baal and he says, he says to them, put, put your altar out there, cry out to your God to come down and burn up the sacrifice. And, they, and all day long they danced around this altar, cutting themselves as the pagan people do, and nothing happened. And then he told the prophets of Baal, now at the end of this, take my altar, pour water on it, build a trench around it. I don't know how many times they poured water on it. Uh, and, and he prayed to God, and God took up the entire altar, all the stones and everything, in one blaze of glory. It was an amazing moment for God. And it should have been an amazing moment for Elijah. But in the next chapter, we find Elijah who runs away. Who runs away. In 1 Kings chapter 19, there he went into a cave and spent the night. He's hiding. He's scared. He's nervous about his actions <laughs> and what he did without recognizing what God had done. And I have to tell you, that is very real. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very, here it is, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword, and I, I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. I feel like these words could be my words so much. Go out, the Lord said, and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. In the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was there, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. How often, I just want to pause there in that text, how often are we looking for something dynamic, something that is inexpressible? We want something, we want something that we can look at and say, well, God surely was in that because of all this accomplishment and all of this doing. God's not there in this moment. And instead, the text goes on to say, and after the fire, there was what? A gentle whisper. Nothing impressive. Nothing showy. No stage. Just a whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mount, mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death by the sword. And I am the only one left. And now, 
they are trying to kill me. I thank you, worship team, for leading the song again this week. Because when I heard it last week, I went to Mark and I said, who's leading next week? <laughs> Run to the Father. This, 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 this idea of wherever I'm at, wherever I find myself, wherever I might be looking for God, it might not be that place. I need to do what I need to do now in this very moment is to run to him, not to my doing. God is always present. But we will always have the tendency to run away. Even in our acts of worship, we miss the very presence of God amidst us. So God, in this text, would send the prophets to confront his children, to call them back to his heart. Hosea 6, 6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, which was their practice. This is how they worship God. It was a bloody experience. It was work that they were doing. And he says, this is not what I wanted. Isaiah chapter 1, the great prophet Isaiah, at the very beginning of his work, which says here, the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God. You spoke to Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. And I think that the people could be hearing this and say, but we're doing the thing that you told us to do in the first place. But to God, they're meaningless because there's no heart into it, in it. Remember God's promise to Solomon? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, Ezekiel the prophet would come during the days that Solomon foresaw that God would deliver his people into exile. And yet in the midst of this dark separation and silence, God promises to restore them and gives us a vision of what the temple will become, this dwelling place of God with man. It is a river flowing from the mountain of God, just like the rivers flowed from Eden and creation. In Ezekiel chapter 47, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, this angel that was walking with Ezekiel to see what he's about to do. And I saw water coming out from underneath the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced the east. It sounds almost exactly like the Garden of Eden described in Genesis, the water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside and the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. And as the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to my waist. He measured off another thousand, and but now the river 
it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the Dead Sea, the salty water there, there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore. From Engedi to Enelgim, there, there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea, but the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on, on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. I've been to the Dead Sea. I've been to that area south of Jerusalem and the Jordan River that flows into the Dead Sea. I floated on the Dead Sea in 90-degree weather. You think our 90-degree weather today is going to be uh, hot? Try there where there's no humidity and no life, and you can float on top of the water because it's so dense and nothing lives in it and don't get it in your eyes or any little cut boy it'll burn like crazy <laughs> and this is what god is telling ezekiel this is what i'm going to do and this is what i desire to do with my people who were steward well creation that out of this temple is going to flow living water that is going to bring healing to the land healing to the world in answer to Solomon's prayer and our prayer. In Ezekiel 37, a reminder, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. Remember the covenant? I will establish them and increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. The presence of God. This is what the presence of God will look like. And what we should strive for. Last week, Paul spoke of leaving us hanging. And he did. Uh, and it's a song that does not resolve. If you're a musician, you understand what I'm talking about. I was, uh, Katie and I were sitting at the table with some of our students on Monday, uh, this past Monday, actually. Actually, they're not students anymore. They've all graduated, and uh, most of them are in different careers here. They're in South Bend. We have one who actually is in Dallas, but her husband lives here in South Bend, and so they go back and forth. She works for American Airlines, so they get free tickets to be able to. Uh, three from China, two from India, and they're sitting at our table as it's just been common for us. And one of the things that they told me in that moment that was just really striking to me and also very heartbreaking to me uh, I remember Amit, who has been here actually to service a couple times, he, he talked about how after graduation, all of these students disperse and they go to their jobs, and then where they are, they find loneliness. They find lack of community that they had when they were in college. Why is that? You know, he says, back in my, my country, family was so important. Family 
you didn't leave your house necessarily. You didn't leave your home. You stayed there. And, and, and that was valued. Why isn't it like that today? And I think in our American culture, we have valued independence so much that it has turned us into a people that say, take care of yourself. Make a name for yourself. Do and be independent. This value. But the problem with that, folks, is we have a world full of people who are struggling with depression and loneliness. We have a world full of people, a lot of students I know, who, who don't know the truth about themselves and their identity because they're not sitting at tables with other people. This is the community. This is not the community that, that God wanted to have. He wanted his people to be together to come around the table. Because in that moment, even though, even though there may be some people sitting at the table who may say some things that will hurt me sometimes, they're going to also speak truth into my life, and I need to hear that. Our trouble in our world is not, is not addictions and abuses. Those are symptoms to the problems of depression and loneliness that we struggle with because we don't open our homes, we don't open our place. Because of this, I posture myself sometimes uh, to seek and defend, to seek to defend who I am and what I do, because I don't trust the community to be the presence of God in my life. Katie said something a few weeks ago that I, just stuck with me. I know I shared it with Georgia uh, a few weeks ago during our prayer time. What we need as a people is some just good old-fashioned loving. Sometimes we're so busy doing what we're doing that we don't love on one another. It's so simple. So simple. When the people that were living in exile returned, they are moved by the fact that they forgot God's law. And this is where I'm going to leave you hanging. So additionally to the temple, they established what is called the synagogue. And I'm sure Chuck will probably hint to this next week as he gets into the New Testament. So that they will remember and not forget because they had forgotten God's law that tells them all of this truth and that they would once again become a people of the word. This happens in, a, in the years of silence that we call it between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the synagogue uh, of this place of reading the Torah, reading the Old Testament, and reminding themselves of the goodness of God. I, uh, I, in my travels in Israel a year ago, I had the opportunity to see uh, many different ruins of some of the ancient synagogues, and one of the ruins that we went to was in the city of Gamla. It was a uh, it was actually a zealot city, uh, and, and the ruins of the synagogue uh, were actually some of the most defined. And in that moment, uh, we, we, I took a video of us practicing just a little piece of what it might have looked like in the synagogue, because the people loved the word, and so they would pull the scroll out of the, uh, out of the uh, Torah box, and they would dance around kissing the scroll. Paul, if you want to go ahead and play that, that would be great.
of the things that uh, uh, that they did in the synagogue is uh, they they would read the scriptures for 30 minutes or more. Now I've I've done pretty close to that this morning. And the person who read the scripture would maybe give a one minute devotion, and that was it. I didn't do that very well this morning <laughs> because they wanted the the scriptures to speak out. Now uh, and in this just a few things about this that I just want to pick up because I think it's very important and a good practice. As they read that, it was the duty of everybody who lived in that community to read from the scroll. Jesus would only read in Nazareth, by the way. If you were part of that community, you read the Torah in your community. And so he never read at Gamla. He never read in Caesarea Philippi. He never read in some of the other places that he went. He only read in Nazareth where he, where he lived. And in that community... There were not five or six synagogues. There was one. And if you didn't like the way that they sang, and you didn't like the, pre, the, people, the person that was speaking, by the way, it was somebody different every week, so it didn't matter. If you, whatever, if you didn't like the seat that you sat on or whatever it was, you could not go down the street to the next one because it was about the community of people that were there. And even if the crazy neighbor that lives next door, it was her turn or his turn to read, you went and you listened to what they had to say in their, in their reading. It was a community that loved one another. And it was also a place of gathering. It was kind of like the coffee shop or the pub of the community. You went to work and you went home but you went to the synagogue, it was the third place. We talk about third places and how we need that. It was the place you wanted to go. It's the place where you went together as a community of people and in the eyes of the other person that you see across from that room, you see the very presence of God. We are blessed. I am blessed. Because when I see you, I see the presence of Jesus. And I truly mean that. And I need to be reminded of that often. And I hope that you will understand that here this morning as well. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for being in our presence and never leaving your post. And for the grace and the forgiveness that you give to us when we do run away. When we run away from you. I pray, Father God, that you would find us as a community of people running to you rather than away from you. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.